Welcome, one and all, to the very first episode of Science and Pictures Presents Science in Podcast. The podcast where we read cool and recent published science and interpret it in a fun way to each other so you don't have to. My name is Jared Adelman, and I am a science enthusiast with a complete inability to ever shut up about it. This podcast is an extension of a project called Science and Pictures, created by my friend and occasional co-host, Rebecca Purchase. The goal of Science and Pictures is largely the same as this podcast, but it instead takes peer-reviewed literature and turns it into an easily digestible comic for fun, faster understanding. So here's how our podcast is going to go down. Besides this first episode, every week, a co-host and I will bring each other a peer-reviewed article to the table, for which the co-host has little to no info about. The meat of this podcast is where we describe everything amazing about said papers to our co-host and have them react to it all in real time. So, a few quick things before we begin. Number one, a whopping none of us have had a podcast before. This is my way of asking you all to please be patient and bear with us while we get the hang of recording, editing, and having decent equipment for it all, um, as well as recording completely remotely because of COVID, which has all its fun little quirks. Also, I have a fairly anxious dog who will make a couple appearances throughout uh, the episodes. Very minimal, I promise, but he's just trying to help, I think. Also, please bear with us while we figure out the actual structure of this thing. Uh, we will start to introduce things like episode themes a little later on, and the co-hosts are going to be switched up a bit as well. This is for no other reason that Becca really does not have a whole lot of time for a co-host role on top of running almost everything about science and pictures. Um, all that said, though, Becca, Madison Dix, my new co-host, and I have had a ton of fun recording and researching these, and we sincerely hope that you have a fun time listening as well. Without further ado, I give you our first episode about something scaly and something else furry. So, Becca, I have two articles ready to go. I'm going to give you the choice of which one do you want to hear. Okay. I have one about something furry and another one about something scaly. Uh, I think we're going to have to do furry because lo lots of scales in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. Um, oh my god, my notes are jumbled. Hold on. Okay, that's everything. Okay, so this article is called Biofluorescence in the Platypus. In the Platypus? Uh, in the Platypus, cool. Ornithorhynchus anatomus. Uh, this was published in the journal Mammalia on, I want to say, November 13th. All right, so uh, first off, this is not bioluminescence. Bioluminescence is confused with biofluorescence all the time, but they are quite different. Uh, Becca, what is bioluminescence? Oh, hold on. This is dusting. Bioluminescence <laughs> and biofluorescence are different. Yes. Bioluminescence is with... Okay, bioluminescence is... Your body produces a chemical of some kind that produces bioluminescence. We'll, exactly. We'll say under black light. And biofluorescence is when there's the bacteria that's involved. Reverse. Ah, oh, damn it. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, so bioluminescence, uh, which is Latin for living light, is, is mostly done by a host of bacteria inside a host. But basically, you have two compounds. You have an enzyme called a lucifer. No. You have something called a luciferin. Then you have an enzyme called a luciferase. In the presence of salt, when they react, that produces cold light. Oh, cool. So biofluorescence is... So if we're going to break it down into, like, 
I guess like last airbender terms or something. Um, Azula is bioluminescence. She can generate the lightning inside her body, right? Okay. But Zuko is biofluorescence. He can only take what's given to him and do something else with it, right? Yes. Okay. So that, I, get that? <laughs> I don't know why I went this way, but that's biofluorescence. Okay. Um, basically, there are these special proteins, sometimes not, sometimes something else, but they absorb short wavelength light. So UV light. Um, mm, okay. And like that's close to that. They absorb it and they re-emit it as a long wavelength because it absorbs energy oh, and the longer the wavelength, the less energy the light has. Okay, great. Right? Yep, on the same page. So, cool. So bioluminescence, absolutely everywhere. Uh, biofluorescence, it turns out, is a lot of places as well. Uh, biofluorescence has been observed in invertebrates like sea stars, corals, and basically every scorpion. Uh, birds, including owls and budgerigars, which are those cute little parrots. Uh, reptiles... It's looking like possibly damn near almost every amphibian, um, as well as over 200 species of fishes. But it also exists in mammals, uh, which we've known about for actually a super long time. Uh, Becca, would you like to guess when biofluorescence was first described in mammals? When it was first described in mammals? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say... Prob- Probably before the, like, big period of, like, Greek and Roman interest in science. Uh, oh, wow. You're going hella far back. Huh? Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> it's a little bit more recent. A little bit more recent. A lot of it. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, that Not sense, everything right? I do is like, a trick. That would be definitely a time where you'd find those things out. Absolutely. Maybe. I don't know if they would even know what to call it, but yes. All right. So... When it was first described? Yes. But we've known about it for a long time? A long time as far as, like, human lifespan. Okay. We just got finished talking about, you know, um, Jurassic and Carnian periods. So a long time is a very different (laughs) conversation for us. Um, I don't know. I actually have no idea. 1872. Okay. I would say that's more recent. That was absurd to me, because, like, how would they even use a blacklight to figure it out back then? Okay. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I couldn't find the answer to that. Really? Um, yes. But it was first described by looking at the skin of, well, the skin and fur of something called the Lutriolina opossum. Uh, Lutriolina crassicaudata, which is a, an opossum from South America. So that was the first one. Um, okay. And all of these initial studies, or the vast majority of them, were from animals that were either roadkill or already pre-dead in some way. So it took a long time for it to actually be validated by living specimens, but more on that later. Um, So a lot more members of the opossum family followed over the next century, most if not all, again, being animals that were killed. In 1985, a group of scientists investigated over 600 museum specimens of 32 different species in the opossum family. Uh, That's the one that the Virginia opossum is from, Didelphidae. We're all tested for biofluorescence. 24 of those 32 species had at least one patch of fur that fluoresced. So in all likelihood, the ancestor to all opossums was biofluorescent because it's a lot more likely than 24 of them all evolving in, at the same in, time, yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. So, oh, and Virginia opossums were proven two years prior in 1983. Um, and over time, many of these species were confirmed to fluoresce uh, by viewing live specimens. Okay. So... Last year, in 2019, biofluorescence was reported in a genus of New World Flying Squirrel, uh, the, the, the genus Glaucomis. 
that's very important because this was the first time that biofluorescence was seen in a placental mammal, in a uh, mammal that gives birth oh, using a placenta. Cool. So the opossums are marsupials. This was the first placental mammal, which was really, really cool. Um, so with the background information through, let's get on to the actual study. So in this study, a team of scientists, one of which actually being the one who described those biofluorescent flying squirrels, examined two stuffed platypuses, one male, one female, originally collected in Tasmania. Each specimen was brought into a dark room and photographed first with visible light, then with UV light, using a, I believe, yellow filter to observe any possible fluorescence. Uh, the filter would, would block UV and blue light, which are both short wavelengths. The visible light pictures came out ordinary showing the dense, uniformly brown fur characteristic of the species. The UV light photos, however, revealed a deep blue back and belly and cyan side profile, bill, and feet. So this fluorescence has yet to be observed in live platypuses. Um, but another specimen from another museum also fluoresced, and because all those other opossums were later confirmed by live sightings, the authors are pretty confident in their interpretation of this data. So platypuses are biofluorescent. That's nuts. <laughs> mm-hmm. So reading all this, my first question, which I'm going to guess is yours too, is why? Yeah. Why on earth is biofluorescence so common in all of these different mammals? The simple answer is that no one really knows, as usual. Um, but there is something, yeah, it's, it's distressing, literally. I know. But um, that there is one thing that every single one of these mammals has in common, their activity patterns. Okay. So, ba 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 these animals are all, without exception, either nocturnal or crepuscular, meaning active at dawn and dusk or, uh, or at night, all times associated with low-light conditions. Okay. Thanks to another study published in 2016, UV-sensitive vision is also known to be widespread among nocturnal and crepuscular mammals in general. So it stands to reason that a number of these mammals would benefit from spawning any extra UV light bouncing off of their possible prey or a potential mate. And the thinking here is that UV-sensitive vision and biofluorescence are intertwined in some way. But none of these functions make much sense for platypuses, seeing as they hunt and swim with their eyes closed. Oh, okay. <laughs> so why, Becca, do you think platypuses hunt and live most of their lives with their eyes closed? Well, they must have another sense that is more important. Oh, they sure do. So, the scientific name for the platypus is Ornithorhynchus anatinus, which translates to bird snout that is duck-like. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this wow. is a pretty fair name as far as names go. What's up? I said, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. But the resemblance between the bills of ducks and platypuses is only superficial. Yeah, right. The bill of platypuses, which is actually fairly flexible, is packed with both mechano and electroreceptors. Okay. This means that within a certain distance underwater... Platypuses can sense not only the movements, but the tiny electrical impulses that every animal emits. So basically, when platypuses are underwater, which is where they spend most of their waking hours, they shut their eyes and basically become part daredevil, part shark. Ooh. Which is just insane. I had no idea that they had electroreception. That's so cool. I had no idea either. Uh-huh. Oh, it's crazy. Um, yes. So because platypuses spend most of their lives with their eyes closed... And because there really wasn't much of a difference between the fluorescence of males and females, meaning it's not really a sexually dimorphic trait or a difference between males and females, the most likely option right now is that platypuses absorb UV light and re-emit it as different long wave wavelength light to thwart their UV-sensitive mammalian predators. But 
of course, until someone can actually study their biofluorescence in the wild, this remains a best guess. But it's the one guess we have right now. So possibly the reason for biofluorescence in mammals is to actually stop the animals, the mammals that evolved UV-sensitive eyesight from actually even using that eyesight to see them, which is really cool. It's entirely speculative, or almost entirely speculative, but still really cool. That's really weird. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm glad we went with furry. <laughs> the other one is a little gruesome, so we'll go back to that one uh, eventually. Gruesome in a cool way. Um, so, lastly, the paper concluded with a very intriguing line of thought. So, with the discovery of biofluorescence in platypuses, we now have at least one example of it in every major group of living mammals. The monotremes, or the egg layers, being the platypus and the echidna, marsupials, mammals with a pouch and very, very tiny babies, and placentals, or us, the mammals that nourish their babies with a placenta. This all at least one. Mm -hmm. What's the likelihood that there is a lot more? Very high. (laughs) Um, Probably very high, because we just did not know to look. There's even a very recent study that they looked at wombats for the first time, and wombats are biofluorescent. So I think the more we look in nocturnal and crepuscular mammals, the more we're actually going to find this. Really? What about cats? Huh. I don't know. They are... Cats tend to be pretty high in the food chain, so I don't know if they'd have the biofluorescent fur if if it's actually to see animals better. But I don't think anyone's found it in the cat yet. The only placental was the uh, flying squirrel. They might, though. That's a curious question. Only the flying squirrel. And there's mm-hmm. really only one way to see biofluorescence anyway, so it's not like it's hard to test for. Exactly. You just need to look at them with a special form of light in a special lens. Right. But it begs the question, was biofluorescence present in the ancestor to all of these mammals? Ah. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. It's getting to the point where it's becoming too frequent for it not to be, right? Exactly. And as us UMass Dartmouth graduates know... Um, <laughs> In the absence of evidence, the most likely solution is, in all likelihood, the most simple one. So it's much more likely that biofluorescence evolved once than 20 or 30 right. times. Wow. Mm-hmm. That must be a really interesting study on how to track when it would have disappeared in specific species. Because... Oh. I don't know. What am I, Possibly, what am I trying to get at here? Um, maybe find when certain groups of mammals lost their biofluorescence if they had it actually. So would the loss of it happen when they evolved some other sort of skill? Because it sounds like biofluorescence is, you know, it really enhances a certain sense. We think. We think. <laughs> Let's say if it does. If it's a really good tool to have, why lose it? You have to get something better, right? Right, which might have been just the diversification of mammals in general. So mammals basically evolved in the shadow of the dinosaurs, right? Right. They were predominantly nocturnal when the dinosaurs were here. But now that mammals were able to take over, there's a lot more in roles that aren't nocturnal or crepuscular. In fact, a lot are diurnal, which is there's just no reason to have biofluorescence as far as we can tell if you are a diurnal animal. So yeah, you're right. Maybe it's just something like a switch in lifestyle. We don't really know exactly what that is yet, but you know, something. Something in their past caused them to lose it. Maybe we could look at the genes that permit biofluorescence and look at their molecular clock to see if they uh, could figure it out that way. I don't know. Wouldn't it be cool if humans kept biofluorescence? Like, that'd be awesome. I would just never sleep. I would just be staring at it. Well, it would be normal at that point, right? (laughs) 
we'd know. Well, I guess that's if, fair. If, if we I grew up with the tail, we'd know everything about it right now, or we'd try to know everything about it. Right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I really like speaking of just like being able to see different patterns in their light. Um, I was always really fascinated by butterflies and like and birds too, the different patterns that they have, mm-hmm. and why. You know, in butterflies, there can be two species that look exactly the same, but they live like they are very distinctly two different species that aren't closely related to each other. So even though they look in our eyes the same under UV light, they their patterns are completely different. Oh, so it. I hear about that in birds, but not the butterflies. So, yeah. So with butterflies, in order to tell mates apart, they can see the different patterns. But for predators, they can only see their, um, their, um, like, the regular, fuck, what's the, uh, (laughs) what's the, um, the light wavelength that we see in? What's it called? The visible spectrum. Well, it starts with an eye, right? Isn't there a? I don't think so. Oh. So do you mean, do you mean infrared? Hey everybody. So we are still pretty new to this podcasting thing, which is my excuse for when I say that at this point I accidentally hit stop. Um, so consider this your quick intermission and now let's get right back into it. Okay. There we are. That is absurd. Is there some, Is there really something in my voice that they can tell that I'm healthy or not? I think I'm healthy. I feel healthy. Maybe I'm not. Maybe my They're computer's not. Either way. Um, it's like distressing. Where were we? What were we saying? I, kind of, I don't even know. I forgot what point we were at. Um, shoot. Oh, but I guess I was talking about butterflies. Yeah. So yeah. in the visible spectrum, um, for predators that or for their predators that see in the visible spectrum, they can't tell the two apart. So like the poisonous monarch and then the non-poisonous other one. Viceroy. Huh? Viceroy. Okay. Is that it? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah, that's it. Then that non-poisonous one, since it looks like the monarch, predators can't tell the difference, but they can easily tell the difference between each other. Um, so yeah, so birds, I guess, are like that too, which is just like... Oh, so cool. So whenever I think bioluminescence or even biofluorescence, that's always the first thing I go to because it's just so beneficial to be camouflaged that way. You know? Absolutely. So I don't know. Do not a lot of marsupials look like each other. So when the original ancestor for all these animals, if they had biofluorescence, like I don't know what I'm trying to say. That's a good question, too. If they were the first ones with EV-sensitive eyesight, then why would they even need it in the... I'm so confused. Yeah. Ugh. But yeah, that's science. Sorry, what were you saying? No, yeah, same thing. It's just popping up a lot of weird questions. Mm -hmm. Lots of strange things. Um, So that study was done... Was published recently, right? Yeah, that was November 13th, I think. Oh, wow. Super, super early. How long was the study for? Did you, did it say? It didn't. Um, it wasn't a whole lot of actual science, which made it easy to talk about. They basically just did like the photographs and put them through okay, uh, like, processing hey, software. Yeah, Can exactly. Someone else do the science. They also didn't say what spurred the study. Like what made them go look at a platypus? I want to know, I want to know why, but it doesn't say that either. Oh, it's so weird. Mm-hmm. Cool. I liked this one. Yeah. 
You want to hear the gruesome one? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> cool. For sure. Um, so this one, do you have time, by the way? Yeah, um, okay. I'll probably go eat dinner in like a half hour or so, so that's fine. Alrighty, I don't okay. think this one will take that long. Okay. All right, scaly time. Scaly time. So this article is called Anatomical and Histological Analyses Reveal That Tail Repair is Coupled with Regrowth in Wild-Caught Juvenile American Alligators. Okay. Ooh. Okay. So you ready? Yeah. Um, so what was that? Should have turned my phone off. So since this paper involves dissection, we should talk first about where the alligator samples came from. Uh, this study was approved by the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Tissue samples either came from other research studies done at the Rockefeller Wildlife Refuge Refuge in Louisiana, um, or from something that I did not previously know existed, nuisance alligators. Uh. Yeah, that, that's an actual thing. So a nuisance alligator, as described by pretty much every state in the American alligator's range, is any gator over four feet long that poses a threat to humans, pets, or livestock. Over um, four feet long? Over four feet. Oh, cool. But if it's not over four feet, then uh, you just kind of got to deal with it. It's just a regular alligator. Uh, it's not do whatever a it wants. It is illegal to call it a nuisance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, if, uh, if Fish and Wildlife is called, investigates, and confirms that the threat is real, uh, the alligator in question is humanely euthanized. I would guess by injection. Um, now, it's, yeah, it's, this part is the sad part. Um, now, as someone who's lived in the Northwest, North, where do I live? Northeast, uh, their whole life, <laughs> I was pretty blown away by the fact that state-run nuisance alligator programs are even deemed necessary. But when you think about how much space humans occupy nowadays, these gator-human interactions are pretty much inevitable. But it is possible to keep these instances of nuisance gators to a minimum. The next, this next part is mainly for all the tourists in gator territory, because I'm going to assume that the people who grow up around them already know what they're doing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> or I would hope for their sake. I know. Um, <laughs> firstly, no matter what size they are, this should also be a no-brainer, but do not feed wild gators. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or really any wild animal for that matter, especially bred the ducks. It's horrible for them. But anyway, um, interactions, especially positive ones, desensitize gators to human presence and increase the likelihood that they will become a nuisance alligator down the line. Second, know their behavior. Alligators are cold-blooded or ectothermic animals, meaning that their body temperature generally matches that of their surroundings. When they need to warm up, they will regularly bask, sometimes for several hours, on an exposed patch of land. Sometimes they will also open their mouth to let out any excess heat and accidentally give the illusion of aggression. It is not. They're not even afraid. They're just literally trying to warn themselves yeah. and they'll leave when they're ready. Lastly, and this is my favorite part, if you are fishing and your line or lure is bitten by an alligator, that gator legally cannot be considered a nuisance. At least in Louisiana. What, really? Yep. That's it was in fact. Cool. Yeah. So if... If an alligator, or, cro or I guess not crocodile, but an alligator were to grab onto your bait. <laughs> you can't do anything. You just gotta let that go. Nice. Uh-huh. It I was, in fact, your fault. Mm -hmm. <gasps> That's great. I love that. Oh, yeah. One, Yeah. Plus one for the alligators. That's a win for them. Absolutely. And it's like a no-brainer, too. Like, if I was a gator and someone waved a lure, tasty lure in front of my face, yeah. I'd bite it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. or if, like, there's a fish hanging off of it. That's clearly in distress. Why wouldn't you eat it? Exactly. They yeah. got those pits in their face. They can feel it. Yeah. But yes, I was very happy to read that. Um, <laughs> legally, it was in fact your fault for luring prey in front of the gator's face. Mm -hmm. It simply reacted as it would normally. 
Essentially, alligators are not going to go away anytime soon. So if you're going to be around them, you are eventually going to need to learn how to coexist with these incredible living relics. Relics. Relish. <laughs> They're green. It makes sense. Yes. Um, all right. Now, back to the topic at hand. So, to start off, this is not the first published report of regrowth of a tail in a crocodilian. Not going to make you guess this time. Uh, reports of this nature span as far back as 1937. Okay, and I definitely wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> I would have guessed way older. Um, Me too. Mm -hmm. Everything's always old. But yes, uh, as far back as 1937, and include species like the spectacled caiman, the yakare caiman, and the Australian freshwater crocodile. A lot of animals in the alligator family, not too much crocodiles, but I don't think we've looked that much yet. Okay. Um, but only one of these previous studies done on a black caiman mentioned anything past the regeneration itself. The authors of our current study were the first to describe and analyze the actual regrown tissue. So, to perform these analyses, three, three regrown tail segments and data from a fourth, and one normal tail segment were removed and preserved post-mortem. Wait, I have a uh, question. Uh, yes. For the regrown tail, are we talking like it fully restores, you know, how an axolotl can grow back, like its limb to look exactly like the old limb? That is a really good question, which I'm not going to answer just yet. Okay, fine. <laughs> Very important later, but I really good question. <laughs> um, but yes. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. So three tails from uh, regenerated and one from a normal alligator. Juvenile to subadults, which actually means somewhere between 8 and 12 years. They aren't mature until they're at least 8 to 12 years old. Okay. Which is crazy. Yeah. But they can look like 70, so it makes sense. Um, <laughs> so the gators with regrown tails were already in that condition when they were caught. So it was not known how long ago or how the actual injuries had occurred. But we can probably assume it had been at least several months, as gator tail regrowth is reported to be a very slow process. So each tail section was radiographed, or put through an x-ray, uh, put through an MRI, and then physically dissected, which each step in the process being photographed. Individual tissue samples were encased in paraffin, which is this sort of transparent, rigid, plasticky stuff, um, and then sliced into razor-thin sections using this crazy vibrating knife called a microtome. That just seems like really difficult if we're talking it, about alligators having very relish-like skin. Very <laughs> <laughs> no, I cannot imagine it was easy yeah, in no, any way. Razor-thin? That must be very difficult. I also can't imagine the smell, but um, oh, yeah, they, didn't, well. they didn't really mention that part. And I'm glad for that. Me too. <laughs> but yes, uh, so these uh, slides were stained for tissue analysis under a microscope. So back to your question, Becca. Okay. Um, all these analyses, analyses and comparisons revealed three major findings. The first, which was rather obvious, uh, looking at the pictures, was that the regrown tails looked very different externally. Okay. Uh, ba 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 Whereas gator tails are generally grayish with bony scales called osteoderms lining the top, mm -hmm. all the regrown tails but one were simply covered all around with small, normal black scales. So almost no osteoderm re regrowth at all. The oh. only tail they did grow back in was an injury that was way up the base of the tail, so it regrew a lot more. Or that's what they said in the paper. I don't really get how that makes sense, but they said it made sense, so we're going with it. <laughs> so it was one that... <laughs> Okay, I, I kind of get it in my head, but I'm not going to try and put it into words. Go ahead. <laughs> Are you sure? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so almost no osteoderm regrowth at all besides that one gator. Okay. Um, second, there was no regrowth of any tail vertebrae, the bones in the tail. What? They were instead... That's oh, yeah. Weird. Indeed. They were instead replaced with a hollow rod of unsegmented cartilage. <gasps> mm -hmm. 
So it was kind of like, this is going to be really gross. If our spine was cut, it's just like the cartilage between the vertebrae extended. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, no way. So oh, yeah. what, what affects what? Does the cartilage regrowth affect the like tissue growth or vice versa? Hard to say. Um, there's a lot of genetic studies that still have to be done. This is a very, very young subject. Okay. But uh, yes, so this sort of imperfect regeneration is also seen in lizards like Anolis. And thirdly, the regrown tails showed no evidence. Oh, actually, I'm about to answer your question. There's no evidence of muscle growth at all. There's just no muscle that came back. Was it like fatty tissue or? Mostly. Okay. Um, so instead, any skeletal muscle or the muscle that attaches to your bones was replaced by heavily vascularized or blood heavy co collagen. Oh, okay. Which is actually very similar to how mammals repair injuries, which is to say that we suck at it. Um, <laughs> there, there's a lot of scar tissue. There's a lot of basically just collagen and cartilage refilling in where bone and other muscle should have been. Okay. So we already have two parallels. We have a healing that's a lot like mammals, and we have a regrowth that's a lot like a lizard. Okay. Which is strange. Um, yes. Where is my place? Oh, oddly, even with the lack of muscle, the tails were still connected to nerves, which were believed to mostly be involved in sensation only. Another weird part. And that is it for the analysis itself. Uh, any other lingering questions? Um, so... They could still feel with it, kind of, but... Yes. But they don't have control of it. So it's kind of just like... It's like re, it's like growing your own... Um, uh, not... What's the word? Um, not orthopedic um, attachment. Adipose? No. Um, like a fatty? Like a fatty thing? No, like it's like, let's say you lose your arm and you get a fake arm, right? Prosthesis? Prosthesis, yes. Yeah, basically. Kind of like your own prosthesis. So it still provides a limited amount of function, but it's more than just like a scab. It's more than just resolving the open injury. Exactly. It's like a combination of both. But why? So that's, I'm not even going to attempt to answer that because they didn't, but... Um, <laughs> We will see, hopefully, in a few years. That'd be really cool. Um, exactly. So now I want to talk about the significance of this study and where it fits into our current knowledge. Okay. So appendage or limb regeneration in vertebrates can be sort of viewed as a spectrum. Uh, vertebrates being any animal with a spine. On the extreme end, you have animals like zebrafish and axolotls, which yeah. are an aquatic salamander, uh, who can regrow complete appendages nearly identical to what was lost. Mm -hmm. And I believe axolotls can also regrow organs, which is just insane. Yeah. Uh, bu 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 African clawed frogs, which are a frog rep rep representative. A clawed um, frog? Yes. That's the they cutest look, name ever. <laughs> they're adorable. They're, they, and they're like a stalwart of research, which is awesome. Oh, gosh. That's is that a so word? Cute. Oh, yeah. They're really cute. Um, so they can actually regrow limbs, too. But the bone stays lost for good. They actually see uh, that cartilage repair as well. And they actually lose their regenerative ability as they grow older, too. Okay. Um, the tadpoles, however, can can regrow complete stuff, which is interesting. So, and then of course you have mammals and birds, which have just lost the ability to regenerate. We can't do it. We can scar, but if you lose your hand, it's not coming back. Just <laughs> yeah. it's it's, it's yeah, just not. It's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, gator regeneration appears to be most similar to the reptile group lizards belong to, uh, which is modern day re represented by lizards, snakes, 
and a weird little lizard cousin called the Tuatara. Okay. Both lizards and the Tuatara replace their tails with a rod of cartilage, but the Tuataras can't regrow muscle either, while lizards can. Okay. That said, sorry, do you have a question? Nope, keep going. Okay. So that said, the fact that lizards, tuataras, and gators all replace their tail with a fundamentally similar tube of cartilage suggests that they all inherited this trait from a common ancestor. But this also raises an intriguing question or two. So gators and birds also descended from a common ancestor. The closest living relatives to birds are crocodiles. Oh. Um, so if gators can regrow their tail, why can't birds regrow anything past tissue? And why can't mammals, who undoubtedly have a regenerator in, the, in their ancestry as well? Just, you know, why? Why is this happening? Why are we losing? I mean, talk about increasing your chances of surviving anything. Exactly. Just, it's, it, I mean, I'm sure it's extremely energy taxing, right? Oh, it absolutely is. There's a lot of, in it like heavily activates the immune system as well, which is a complete energy sink. And that is actually one of the hypotheses for why birds and mammals lost that ability. Because we're, well, also, if our immune system, like, is highly activated that way, a lot of times, the more complex you are, the more likely your immune system turns on you, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, unfortunately, this is a hypothesis that's sort of been refuted by modern evidence. Okay. Um, the thinking was that mammals and birds have insanely complicated immune systems. Uh, they have a component that launches the initial attack, and they have one called the adaptive that launches a more sophisticated, longer attack. But that's kind of been refuted by the fact that lizards and alligators also have that type of immune system. So there's really nothing, there's no reason that that, that immune system would stop that re regeneration. In fact, in studies in lizards, it shows that the immune system is actually crucial for the activation of the regeneration. But in their day-to-day -day life, could you say that alligators are as active? Do they spend a lot of time resting? A good question. Okay. So where was I going with this? That's a good question. And that's actually the primary thought of why nice. this is happening, which is endothermy. Um, okay. So the, ba, 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 ba. what is endothermy? Endothermy is the regulation of one's own body temperature by internal processes. So just like you were saying, the energetic costs of endothermy seen in both mammals and birds, both of which cannot regenerate, require vastly more energy day to day than ectotherms or cold-blooded animals. So maybe for mammals and birds, regeneration is simply not included in their energy budget. Yeah. But the answer, as always, will only be revealed by further study. <sighs> so two more really cool things. Okay. There is evidence for tail growth of crocodilians going back 180 million years. I'm assuming, oh, so evidence for it, for fossil yes. record. <laughs> I was like, mm -hmm. don't make me guess about how far no, 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 no. humans <laughs> um, So there's a Jurassic marine crocodile, Steniosaurus balensis, that has a regrown tail with that same rod of cartilage. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. And also, I was hoping to talk a little bit about this, but it turns out it's not actually this. Um, have you ever heard of autotomy? Yeah. So the force of removing of a body part to sort of give it to a predator? Yeah. Um, some There's definitely lizards that do that, right? There are. Like, Unfortunately for... Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. You're good. I think I had a pet lizard once like a very long time ago, and it wasn't even like a pet. It was more like a handoff from someone else. Um, it was one of those, yeah, anole lizards, and they can do that, right? They can. So that's why, like, when you're cleaning the 
cage. I actually really forgot I had this animal ever in my possession at one point. It was for a very <laughs> short period of time. Um, like when cleaning their kennels or like trying to get them out, you know, you don't want to grab the tails because they can just remove them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's actually something called the plane of autotomy. Uh, basically a part in the vertebrae of their tail where it's designed yeah. to snap off. Yeah. Oh, it's all coming back to me now. There you go. Um, unfortunately for the alligators, they don't have this ability. They can't autonomize. There's no point of autonomy in their tail. So all of these injuries were completely traumatic. Their tails were literally ripped off or bitten off at random points. So it sucks for the alligators. They can't easily lose their tail. But the important thing is they can grow it back. Parts of it. Parts of it. Exactly. It's not like a full grown like to the point tail is is it more like a nub or does it eventually taper out to a point and can so, function as a rudder still or whatever it can function as a rudder but the first question we just don't have an answer to yet um there needs to be long-term studies on like long-term re- regeneration not just on an individual yeah. that was euthanized so you only have like a single point in time right. um so unfortunately no answer for that yet good question no it's, answer it's hard to believe though that there isn't an alligator in captivity of some kind that they couldn't monitor for this, right? That is kind of what they did during this study, like finding the gators with with regrown tails and using those. But I guess in theory, they could follow an alligator around. I don't know why they haven't. I don't know. Go talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ooh, last thing. There is an example of autotomy in a mammal. Is it the platypus? It is the... <laughs> Unfortunately, not not the platypus. They do uh, sweat milk out of their belly. The males are venomous. They have electroreception. No autonomy. And biofluorescence, yep. And bi- yes, and biofluorescence. Um, so this is reported in the African spiny mouse, and this is absolutely horrifying. Their skin is autonomous. They can just shear off parts of their skin to give to predators, and then blood vessels close around the wound. Which is just... Oh, okay. So that's... I guess how not... I don't know the science behind this, but how is that different than just like us also having like, as gross as this is, like a knife cut off a slice of skin grows back. That's scar tissue. Right. It kind of plays into the whole plane of autotomy thing. Okay. Um, like if you were to just have someone cut a pass for your skin off, that's going to bleed like crazy, right? Oh, I see. So it's kind of more the the way the organ was designed. Exactly. Is to intentionally remove and there's like a an emergency backup system basically that shuts everything off. Yes, exactly. Again. Yeah, okay. Whereas you should loose. not be cutting off skin with knives, that's for no. sure. <laughs> I hope that's not how they figured it out in the mice, but no. yes. My skin is not autonomous. Ew. Yep. That's kind of gross. Mm-hmm. All right. This also great for the mice. Question: This must exist somewhere else in mammals, and we just haven't found it yet. Autotomy? Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it for a second. Yeah. But which one? Not humans. Not yet, anyway. (laughs) I like papers like these because they definitely raise the question of if we could play God and design our own species. Which, to be frank, we're getting there. Um, Of that we're really early 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 in that process you know what what superpowers would we give ourselves like how would it 
in terms of energy distribution, how would it change us? You know, can you have hmm. people, some that can regenerate limbs, but then others can have electroreceptivity? You know, clearly you can't have all of them at once because we would just be exhausted more than we are right now. <laughs> or just eat like an absurd amount of food day to day. Yeah. I don't know. That's a little far-fetched of my imagination, but <laughs> it's like one of those things you can't help but think about because it always comes down to, oh, why couldn't, can't humans do this, right? Like, Absolutely. Even if that's not your focus point at all, just as a human being, you always have to wonder that. Everyone has to wonder that. Like, oh, what if humans could do this? And it's kind of weird. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird. Study those axolotls long enough, we might be able to soon. No. No? No. I don't want to. It's kind of, I, I, You don't want to regenerate? What is wrong with you? I mean, I guess regenerate. I don't want to be an instance where I have to regenerate a limb. That's for sure. All right. I, I guess that's fair. <laughs> oh, my but, God. Have you seen Heroes? No. There's this one uh, scene where Hayden Penetier, who is a regenerator, just cuts off her toe for no reason just to see if she can. And it is the worst thing I've ever seen. So that's the point I was going to bring up is the reason why I wouldn't. I said no to the axolotl studies is because I don't want to watch people removing limbs of any species to watch it grow back that's just oh, that's strange fair. yeah i've talked to a couple axolotl scientists that's not the part they enjoy yeah no definitely not oh it gives me the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it i also wouldn't want to be the one to euthanize these gators or really anything like that so yes yeah, very good yeah. i just want to read about it well it'll be cool to see what they come out with beyond this in you know the next decade or so um I, I would be surprised if they aren't, they don't already have an alligator in captivity in some sort of way that has a tail and they're going to like measure the regrowth year to year. Like that just seems it's something you'd have to do, you know? I guess so. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they will now that the study came out. Maybe. Because this was super recent too. I think this was either in October or November. The platypus one was in November? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So super this one was also very recent. That's cool. Wow, I love yeah. today. And they all kind of, they kind of related to each other a little bit. They did. I noticed after writing these that all of my things had a connection to paleontology, which makes sense knowing who I am as a person. Well, yes, that I'm not surprised <laughs> about. But more or less just talking about like the evolution and progress of life in this modern day, I guess you could say. And the, and the weird choices that- Building those connections. I don't know. Anyway, super cool. I like that. I loved it. It was good. <laughs> Glad it, you liked it. It was interesting. I will have six more ready for next week. Six? You're going to beat me to no, it. No, like... <laughs> I just read... Um, I don't even want to tell you about it yet because it was amazing, but it was an immunology article about dinosaurs. Immunology so about dinosaurs? And the traces that their fossils leave that allow us to tell things like this. That's weird. That's cool. So probably do that one next. Okay. And save some of the best ones because once, maybe not save some of the best ones because I guess we want to be more um, up to date, but definitely once the first issue is printed, we can totally redirect our focus to just doing comics about an article at a time, you know? Hell yeah. Instead of like a themed magazine which is taking a long time. <laughs> Gets more of the scientists on our side too. It Have does. the market for us. It does. Um, okay, cool. Well, that was really exciting. Yeah, that was fun. Those were good ones. Um, so next week, we'll possibly be talking about dino immunology. I'll have more 
kind of shark stuff to talk about um just to keep it issue one themed um and so i completely derail it on my articles well it gives it gives everyone something else just a little bit different to listen to (laughs) hey i'm kind of fed up with talking and drawing and reading about sharks and i'm sure everyone else will be too so (laughs) this breaks it up a bit fair enough cool okay 